Hello, beautiful listeners. I am your host, Nick, and I am joined by Malcolm Ocean, the creator of Complice, an app that helps people stay in touch with their big picture goals on a day-to-day basis. Learn more by visiting C-O-M-P-L-I-C-E dot C-O, which is complice.co. You can learn more about Malcolm by visiting malcolmocean.com and by following him at Malcolm underscore Ocean on Twitter. Malcolm, welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. You seem to think and write a lot about productivity. When I think of productivity, I think of goal-orientedness. And when I think of mindfulness, I think of acceptance and playfulness. A lot of spiritual instructors talk about how ego is the enemy. What do you think of productivity within this context? I'm coming from a a very, I guess, uh, mistake theory uh, type of perspective rather than conflict theory, Um, which, which is to say I... I tend to think you're not going to have very much success if you view ego as an enemy. Um, It sort of reifies the very thing you're trying to loosen into something you need to fight, which then you are then reinforcing by fighting it. I think that this is also what happens when people attempt to... uh, Someone had a great quote. It might have been Richard Bartlett. uh, Is like trying to smash the patriarchy is like trying to shop your way out of capitalism. (laughs) Um, So... So yeah, and 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 then, but then that raises this question of like, what does it look like to let go? What does it look like to find a a thing that's not that's not pushing, that is allowing? Um, mm-hmm. There was also all sorts of thoughts bubbling up about you know the history of like even where we get the concept of productivity, going back to Taylorism in the I think late eighteen hundreds, early nineteen hundreds, and mm-hmm. um, Averagearianism, which is. Uh, not a term that people self-identified by. I don't know if Taylorism <laughs> was actually, or if that was just applied later. You know what I mean? Like there's sort of yeah. some isms are only applied retroactively as a kind of, you know, th- con- this is a confusion. Nihilism used to be this actually. I don't know if you know that, but mm-hmm. nihilism actually was a uh, w- was a f- a fake philosophy. I. Th- I- Oh, I'm not certain about this. Maybe I'm thinking of negative utilitarianism. Um, anyway, one of those at least was a, a fake philosophy that was invented as a straw man to point at like flaws that other philosophies also had. Um, and then people started adopting it, which is, you know, like when people try to invent dystopian technologies. <laughs> yeah, a little bit of a backfiring. But I it became a huge component of philosophy and maybe maybe the mocking of it was coming from a, a fear of it because it, it does seem fairly powerful and it seems like something that people actively contend with. Yeah, this is part of part of what's so interesting about things. It's like one of the things I say is every experience you've ever had is real. Um, but what the implications you think that experience has, those are the things that are uh, quite suspect. and. This is part of what people try to do with mindfulness is kind of get back to the the bare experience and say, well, what do I actually know? Um, not in a sort of doubting everything except one's own capacity to doubt mm-hmm. sense, but yeah. like you actually do have all of your sense data and all of your memories in some sense, but you don't necessarily know how those all fit together. And 
everyone at every given moment, as far as I can tell, is engaged in massive, massive overgeneralization because there's a sense in which your mind forms at any given time a model of the entire universe. The entire, <laughs> uh, and when I say universe, even like that's a whole frame. Like yeah. your, your mind is somehow explaining everything you have experienced. And necessarily, therefore, you, you, uh, you like, you don't have enough actual sense data to like fill in all the details. But because you're trying to always explain everything, the sense data you do have kind of gets stretched like a like a sort of piece of rubber over a over a drum to become a kind of you know over like a spread thin kind of membrane uh where was i going with that oh like what yeah why does something like nihilism come in it's like well people experience depression they experience acutely meaninglessness they experience doubt of of meaning and all, all those kinds of things and then they then they're trying to explain that and they're coming up with all sorts of explanations but usually when you get into an ism, you're leaving out some other parts of your experience. That, that's that's what tends to happen. Yeah, that's a strange introversion, like seeking meaning and meaninglessness, um, which is, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, that's that's like the nihilistic approach, right? It's like, oh, well, if things are meaningless, then and right. And, and just by doing that practice, you're you're trying to find meaning in the in the meaningless. Um, but it, it comes from the that first assumption. I'll take a step away for a moment and ask a pretty um, simple question, but I'm I'm not sure what your answer is, which is, what do you think is at the core of good conversation? What a beautiful question. I've been I've been actually thinking about this explicitly in the last few weeks, maybe month or so. Mm -hmm. um, it's been in the background for way way longer, but. Um, well, we might ask, what, what do we mean by high quality conversation? And then the two of those are going to inform each other very strongly. Right. Some people think of, of conversation as simply like a kind of transactional exchange of ideas. Um, and in, in such a case, you know, well, you want to have people asking good questions and then you want to have people finding good answers and not going into too much depth in situations where somebody already knows something, right? Like kind of, well, that would be a very brave conversation, right? Where, where you're exploring the unknown sort of, and trying to help each other. And that would, that would require a lot of trust too. Well, well, right. And, and then that, that gets into more of kind of like, um, you know, I, conversations are ultimately fundamentally kind of improvisational. Um, and that's part of why we have them, <laughs> right? And yeah. so even though I have literally pulled up a model of what factors go into high quality conversation, it's not a very well organized model. And I'm still very much speaking off the cuff here. Like I'm still very right. much just kind of like at the edge of my own seat being kind of like, well, there's, you know, first we got to talk about what, what we mean by high quality conversation, because I have a bunch of assumptions about that, that somebody else might not share, in which case, when I talk about what I see as making for high quality conversation, they might be confused. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's like, I, I didn't have to explicate that in my original model, because I already knew what I meant by high quality conversation. When I think about conversation, I think about it as a context where new thoughts can emerge, because there is a space created for them by the conversation. And, and, and that may involve at times, you know, sharing a thought that has already been thought 
in essentially that level of detail or quality before. And one of the most core pieces from my perspective is the capacity for the people in the conversation to sustain a collective train of thought. And it's very common in conversation to kind of have either one person sort of form the trunk of the tree and everything else is sort of a tangent off of whatever they're thinking about. Mm -hmm. um, this is pretty common if you if you get in a conversation with somebody who's very charismatic or is sort of the leader of a group, they might be kind of directing the whole conversation and like any like they they are like every other speaker is them. You see what I mean? Like they say yeah. something, somebody else says something, then they say something again, then somebody else says something, then they say something again. It's like a thing that can happen in a group. Um, th this isn't intrinsically bad, but it does. It if that's what's going on, that person's train of thought is is sort of dominating the conversation, and you're not getting a collective train of thought in the same way. Although it, it still makes a difference, the extent to which other people are able to sort of follow that train of thought versus just kind of being dragged along for the ride or sort of. I don't really know where we're going, but like, I guess we're following what this guy's saying. Um, whereas if everybody is sort of collectively attuning to where do we seem to all be going collectively, um, that makes a difference. And then there's a meta piece, which is whether there's common knowledge of how much on the same page we all in fact are, including... Mm -hmm being on the same meta page of being on the same page about whether we're on the same page. It's, it's like, <laughs> it's like, can we collectively feel the extent to which the conversation is coherent? And do we feel like, like, cause sometimes uh, I'm curious yeah. if you've had this experience, like being in a, in a group conversation and you kind of feel like, I don't know why anybody's saying what we're saying right now, mm. but you sort of don't know if other people are also confused. I heard somewhat recently that like some people know what they're about to say and that's not true for me at all i pretty much never know i'm what i'm about to say i'm always just making it up in the in the moment and kind of relying on my ability to make sentences and stuff like that mm -hmm. um and it makes me think a little bit about uh the in-group text uh finite and infinite games where um if people know what they're about to say, then that is effectively dead as play. Mm -hmm. There there always needs to be some amount of freedom such that even if it's on Broadway and there's an actual script and everybody's performing together and there's a place where you step and you're going to a beat and you're trying to hit this note, but there's still, it's still, there, there's a performative way that they're that they're expressing a certain amount of freedom together and so even within the the confines of that they they find ways to perform for it to feel alive every time yes right yeah. exactly um on the other hand uh pen of pen and teller says how sometimes he would be dead on stage he would be like you know, big smile, speaking to the audience, performing, and it was his thousandth time doing it. And he's thinking about his laundry or an argument he had with his wife while he's doing his act, right? Yeah. And so, um, so the the latter is is clearly a, a dead kind of performance, and probably it's probably a shame to call it a performance. Um, but I think, yeah, I, the way I think about good conversation, it's um, it's tied to that liveliness, right? It's it's tied to that. 
um, expressing one's own creativity and freedom, even if you don't know where it's going. And I think a lot of the times with conversation, you're not necessarily getting like better ideas or developing on anything, or you may not have no goal orientation, even though one can have good goal orientation, you know, like, um, Kahneman and his partner were always, uh, feeding off of one another towards mm-hmm. some goal. I, I'm, I'm forgetting his name. Amos. Sursky. Yes. So there, there are a lot of ways it can happen, but I think that the key to the, to quality is, is feeling alive. Yeah. And it's, it's that, it's that aliveness that makes the difference between a kind of like, yes. And quality of conversation versus something that feels more like a tug of war. Even when you're in an argument, arguments can feel very alive too. Oh yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But there's, but, but like, there's a difference between like somebody really being like, Whoa, hang on. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I'm taking that in. I still don't see it though, because blah, blah, blah. Right. Like, that's very right. engaged and alive versus like when you're, right. you see an argument and two people just completely talking past each other and they don't even mean <laughs> the same thing by the words right. that they're using. It's just like, yeah. guys, shut up. Like they, they, they're not having a, a shared train of thought. Like you can have a shared train of thought that is being pushed in multiple directions, but it's still like you're on the same page about what it is you're in fact saying. And I, I find if you don't have that in some ways, like you kind of just got to back up until you have it or something like, or or sometimes it's it's just it's over and, and like you just right, move on. It's not possible in that moment. Totally. <laughs> you know? Speaking of, you've written about how we get stuck not doing something, and yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. It's where we can't actively do something else. So it's not just that we're not doing something, but it it's it's um, becoming a block, and uh, that made me think of a period of time. Um, that I've written about a little bit, like on on Twitter, but basically I left finance and I became really depressed. And um, like my my parents were divorcing, and um, I stopped working because mm-hmm. I had been working with my dad, and he stopped working, I stopped working, and I basically just like I had some money, and um, I basically just like played video games, read books, jogged on the beach. Um, and agonized over not working for more than a year. Um, so I was telling this story to a coworker and they remarked how great it sounded to have all that time to rest and reassess. <laughs> and yeah. yet at the time, I never thought of it that way. Like I, I look back now and I compare that time to like um, in the protagonist in Gary Paulson's Hatchet, uh, the the protagonist like continues in the wild, thinking that around every bend he's about to find like civilization to help him out because he's he's lost in the wilderness. And my experience was like that, but like not hopeful. It was like the mm. opposite. Like I couldn't accept that I was just taking time off that I needed um, because I was always trying to push my or not push myself, but like psych myself up to get back to work because like I I needed to. You know, that's how I thought about it. And so instead of enjoying a year off of work, you know, I agonized over it just every day. Yeah. Yeah. Classic. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, so that idea that like the solution is around the bend, it it seems like a type of anxiety that kind of keeps us moving forward, but it seems like it, sometimes it serves us and sometimes it doesn't. So my question for you is what do you think about, 
um, about that tension and what do you have to say about the usefulness of anxiety versus the harm it does regarding mm. not doing and kind of the orientation we have towards, um, you know, the, the moment that we're in. I mean, this is, this comes back to kind of that whole, that whole conversation that's been coming quite alive on Twitter over the last year or two around coercion and non-coercion. And like, what do we even mm -hmm. mean by coercion? Um, what, what would non-coercion be? You know, some people are like, yeah. I can't even fathom what that would possibly mean. And in yeah. some cases, that's because they've sort of defined coercion so broadly that, of course, you can't escape from it. Um, in other cases, it's because they, they just haven't tasted uh, an alternative. Um, and and it seems somewhat related to the thing that, you know, the Buddha was calling suffering or dukkha. Um, mm -hmm. So I've been rec I recently sort of defined coercion. I'm exploring this definition. It's still very much a work in progress, but it's um, uh, taking advantage of some scarcity or problem that uh that somebody has that you that you have some capacity to solve but you're saying i'm not going to solve it until you do this thing that i want you to do and it's pretty obvious how you can do this with um with other people right you know if you have money and somebody else doesn't you can kind of get them you can in theory according according to the theory of coercion you could say you can get them to do whatever you want um in order to get the money unless they have a better offer from somebody else because they need money basically yeah um and i mean they need money in the context of needing to buy food in order to live obviously if somebody else was giving them all of their material needs they wouldn't per se need money but you know you get the idea yeah but then people talk about self-coercion and it's like well how the hell does that work because you know you can't you can't give yourself money like that doesn't make any sense mm -hmm. um but it seems like in the internal economy of the brain there are parts of you that can make you feel bad and they can say like you will feel bad until you do this thing at which point you get to feel good right and the idea is that this will motivate you to do the thing and this sometimes works but it has some pretty nasty side effects one of which is that you feel miserable in the meantime or anxious or depressed <laughs> or just shitty or yeah. just like stressed and two is that like it makes it hard to be creative about doing the thing because you're stuck in a state of scarcity so you actually have a similar orientation to trying to get out of this of this pain as somebody whose family is starving has to you know, somehow immediately find food, you know? And so you've got Jean Valjean, you know, stealing the loaf of bread to feed his family. Um, it, like people, you know, desperate times call for desperate measures. And there's a sense in which this kind of uh, coercive or self-coercive mode of operating involves remaining in a state of desperation. And that state of desperation will find other solutions to its problems, you know? It'll be like, oh, well, I, I can't feel good until I do this thing. Well, how about I, you know, shoot up some heroin then? Mm -hmm. And it's like, hey, <laughs> I solved it. I feel good now without doing the thing. Um, and, you know, as one one example or or just like. You know, finding a way to not look at the whole situation, um, as opposed to if you're if your creativity is oriented towards directly actually just wanting to do something not wanting to escape the pain 
that you're inflicting upon yourself for not having done it already. You can be a lot more creative. You can say, how do I want to do this? How do I want to approach this? Do I want to do this? Like you can actually ask those questions because there's sort of space there. Yeah, so this is kind of a, an indirect answer to your question, which I don't even remember exactly what it was, but something about anxiety <laughs> and the, yeah. the, you know, not doing in the sense of being tied in knots by what you're not doing. As you're exploring this area, it actually made me think about a lot of things, um, which is that like you're talking about like the food to live, like we're giving money for the food to live when in reality, like the things we actually need, like especially in the Western world anyway, the things we actually need are often costing significantly below what we make, you know, so we could have, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know, uh -huh. a, a somewhat uncomfortable apartment and a somewhat uncomfortable car and be eating food that is perhaps not our favorite and be spending a lot less time doing work of any kind. Um, but we don't choose to do that. So most people don't. yeah, well, yeah, most people don't. So it, it raises the question, like, what, why are we doing all of this? Why are we working for money? And I think it's a lot of it is tied to that coercion that like that feeling that you need to um, be someone you need to meet a certain standard that you need to be a certain way. And another way that I'm thinking about this is that um, the elevation of non misery as this special thing to put it almost like on a on a pinnacle uh -huh. of some kind is um it, it's almost like perverted it's it's like choking before a climax right it's like you're you're putting yourself through all this stress and tension such that when you do go on vacation or, or you do have a break or whatever it is it's like this such a, a release of tension that it it elevates that experience in and of itself but it's self-inflicted it's a little bit fake, actually. Yeah. Is kind of the sense I get when I kind of attune to what you're saying. There's a quality of, and, th and this is part of, weirdly, like this is part of what makes it so sticky. We kind of have been psyoped into being like, well, I can't just feel good now. That would be cheating. Right, right. And, and moreover, then I wouldn't, then I would never do anything, says the, the propaganda um, from the sort of, you know, big coercion. Yeah, there's a story, there's a quick story that's tied to this, which is um, there's a there's a hedge fund manager on the beach of it could be wherever, you know, some some fisherman's beach. And uh, the hedge fund manager is speaking to the fisherman and saying, oh, man, you know, you've got a great enterprise here. If, if you cut some expenses here and you hire a few more guys and you work some more hours, then in 15 years you can retire. And the fisherman looks at him and goes, well, what would you do with all this money? Like when I retire, he was like, oh, well, you know, you could go to the beach and, and relax and you wouldn't be tied to the work and, and you could just do whatever you want. But from the fisherman's perspective, like that's exactly what he's already doing. Yeah, he's like, I love going to the beach and fishing. Like, this is my dream. <laughs> right, yeah. right, exactly. Yeah. And the funny thing about that story, which is um, I was, when I was jogging on that beach, I would see people with these little coolers and they would be fishing off the beach. And um, I would just think like, what kind of lives are these people living? Not, not like in a critical way, but it was just kind of interesting to me that I'm going there during the daytime you know, during the week and I see them every day and they're just literally on the side of a beach with, with some, uh, right. So they're clearly not working some other nine to five. Right. Exactly. 
And it's a large group of people. It was like six people. <laughs> I was just like, this is what they do? Yeah, I mean, this is something I've encountered in, along different dimensions from like being self-employed with a software business where I kind of like work on it whenever I feel like it for the most part. Mm -hmm. I mean, unless there's mm -hmm. like some show-stopping bug that's making making my day <laughs> upset, but like that's really rare. Like that's, you know, a couple hours out of the year am I like, like literally the like, paramount obvious most important thing i could be doing is fixing some bug um and so you know i i just i find myself out and about like at arbitrary times and i i'm very disconnected with with the world of people like working regular hours it's it's very far away for me i mean i've i've been running this company for many years like and and basically before i graduated from university i like started started the company with the aim of not having to get a job once i graduated yeah and i think that's afforded such tremendous space for my own like growth and so on it's it's been really cool but but also like a lot of people don't know how to actually organize their time if they don't have somebody kind of expecting them somewhere and telling them what to do like it's it's really it's really difficult for them to make sense of how to spend a whole week even as we go through the the flow of life um i i forget where i read it but it it said that um that like uh financial mobility isn't something that happens between generations but it's something that happens within an individual's life that in most individuals lives they either go from you know middle class to upper middle class to lower middle class or you know they, they'll traverse being approximately well off and wealthy um or or at least like in participating in those circles to some degree mm -hmm. but i think that's also true for um kind of the the wealth of our everyday experience that like there was a period of time where i um at work i was mostly listening to like audiobooks and thinking a lot and thinking pretty deeply about certain concepts. And then on my time off, I would like go jogging and I would still be, you know, I would, and I would be writing. And so that afforded me a kind of um, like intellectual wealth. And then other times you're entertaining other parts um, of, of your, of yourself, of your experience. And so it's kind of like, as we go through life, we're, we're always um, kind of invested in different parts of ourselves. Mm-hmm. You mentioned uh, Celine's broth, and I believe that Celine Telechia once mentioned how becoming a mother allowed her to see that maybe the difficulty she had regarding self-coercion, as you were discussing earlier, um, but as a, as a teen in school, um, she just had difficulty with school, as I understand it, and uh, she kind of had to force herself to do it all, but now she thinks that that was really informing her that school was kind of the wrong path for her and that being mm -hmm. a mother was the right path. Um, so I guess my question is like, how do you think we can best attend to what our experiences are telling us about how we should orient ourselves? This is really, this is really tough, you know, because it's like there are flow states you can't experience until you've trained for a long time that once you're there, you might be like, wow, this is so amazing. I'm so glad this is in my life, but right. it might be hard to get there without a bit of pushing or something like that. I don't have a good sort of simple rule of thumb for distinguishing between pushing that feels good and pushing that like 
is causing problems. I mean, if I ha- if I had to name a rule of thumb, it would be something like, are you noticing oscillations? Is like one one big question. Like, do you kind of swing between, oh, I should do it a bunch. Oh, I hate it. I should do it. I hate it. Like, there's if there's is there kind of back and forth? Mm. Um, when I like I've been recently getting back into going to the gym and. I sometimes don't feel like going to the gym, but I've been giving myself a lot of space to just really sit with like, okay, is it time to go to the gym now? Maybe, maybe soon. Okay. You know, it's kind of gym day. Like I went to the gym two days ago or three days ago. So it's kind of time to go again today, but like really not assuming that I'm going to have to go to the gym because I'm really trying to sort of really gently feel into my relationship with, with going to the gym. Mm -hmm. Um, But when I'm at the gym, that's when that's when willpower really kicks in for me like that's when there's actually something to be willed about like i was doing bench presses today and mm-hmm. uh and i was i was pushing and when i got to the I, 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 the the first three sets of five felt too easy so i was like fuck it i'm gonna do a fourth set and i did the first four and they were like fine but increasingly difficult and i got to the fifth one and almost all of my body mind was just saying i can't i can't i can't push (laughs) this 155 pounds a foot in the air i i can't i can't i can't i can't and i was sort of like yeah 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 cool i hear all the i can't where's the i will Mm -hmm. and i just listened for the i will and there was the i will and i was like all right i will and i just did (laughs) yeah and you know sometimes like if 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 somebody had gone and added 20 pounds to the bar while it was down right there, I probably actually, in fact, couldn't have given my capacity. Like it was right. It was right <laughs> on the edge for me. Right. Mm-hmm. So yeah. you can't always uh, overpower. I can't with I will. But there are there are times when you when you can. And the important thing there is not to not to get mad at the I can't. It's sort of like, OK, the I can't is just there. It's 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 got its perspective sure but even the articulation of i can't is like again it's like you have all the experiences you have and then you have some some implications that you think there are to these experiences as i was saying earlier Mm -hmm. there's you actually like i can't is a is a very specific claim Right. And and I was talking to to my friend Eric about about something like this. And he said, yeah, for me, it doesn't it's not even really I can't. It's just like, oof, this is difficult. Right. Which is different. You know, it doesn't have the same claim tone. It's just like, wow, this is really hard. Um, And so, again, it's like you're just focusing the the will on like, if I can do this, I will. Mm -hmm. And and just like moving through it. So where where do you think the I can't like comes from? Like what do you what do you think that part of yourself is? And what what do you think like what purpose does it serve? Like is it coming from fear or is it coming from self-preservation or you know, those are the same? Like there's there's gonna be people who have way more developed theories of what's going on in relation to weightlifting um than I. Like, you know. But I do think in general, probably part of what's going on with these voices is is something like a don't make me or something like I like. I don't know. I mean, people have such huge tangles in relation to their own will. Right. Um, I, I don't. 
it, aside from when I'm at the gym these days, I almost never think of using will as like a thing that I'm doing. Um, I'm just sort of doing what I feel like doing. You know, sometimes I, I have a, a choice that I might feel a bit torn about and I have to sort of deal with that. But there's no right answer. If there were a right answer, I wouldn't be torn in the first place. Mm-hmm. You, you see what I mean? Yeah. Um, and maybe someday I will get in the gym and I will be like, will and the bar just won't move. And I'll just like cry <laughs> for a <laughs> a bit and i'll just be like well I, I guess i'm done here like um and that'll be okay you know um yeah. and so it's you know it's not like i'm staking my identity on making a particular choice or something mm. there was a video that i saw of a kid uh I, I think it was on youtube or something but he he like he like decides to go super saiyan and he he's like trying to manifest this and he just he's you know he's he's doing the whole thing screaming and tensing up his muscles and everything and he's he's like really going for it and of course of course he doesn't make it but um his hair doesn't like spontaneously turn blonde <laughs> yeah. right yeah um but like the, uh, the there's something about, about the effort that as cringe as it is um something something about putting that much will into something as silly as trying to go super saiyan for for no specific reason like it's mm-hmm. not it's not like it's, it's not, not like a battle. He, right <laughs> he wasn't in the, he was in the middle of fighting a villain um but something something about putting forth that effort um because i think like you you're talking about the the 20 pounds right that there's probably a situation in which you could be at the limit and you could probably lift that 20 pounds because the other side of not doing it is so incredibly problematic right and you hear about these things of people doing extraordinary things right um, right you know the mother lifts yeah. a car off of her kid or something like that and it's just like wait what <laughs> Right. So there is so there is something about that dimension, but um, there's definitely something to um, the simply, I guess, the ability to in, invite the will, because in, in my experience with it, with with the I can't a lot of the time, it's just like I don't want to feel this way anymore and don't make me feel this way anymore. Like quit mm-hmm. just quit it. And it's not quit because like, oh, I don't believe in myself. It's not quit it because like anything like that. It's just like, no, I don't want to feel this way anymore. No, stop. And you know, is that, is that a weakness? I don't, I don't really know how to think about it, but I feel like it's that, like for me, it's that, that is preventing me from doing the things I quote unquote want to do. It's that the animal in me doesn't like the feeling of of trying to do it, Mm. you know? Yeah, yeah. And, and and so this then depends on like, where is that feeling actually coming from? It's like if I'm at the gym, there's the strain on my muscles, like there's the the physical strain, which has a kind of discomfort to it, you know, and if it has a certain kind of discomfort, I'm going to nope the fuck out of there immediately because I'm like, mm-hmm. I'm hurting myself, like <laughs> pushing myself right now is ain't, ain't going to help anybody. Um, except maybe the chiropractor pay his bills. Um, but uh but, you know, there's there's just this discomfort of pushing myself that I'm experiencing. And. And so there's there's the intrinsic discomfort that's just there. 
Yeah. And, and then again, I might have whatever stories I do about that or whatever meaning I do about that. Yeah. Um, and that's where you get into more of the kind of suffering discomfort of like, I shouldn't be feeling this. I should already be stronger or done being at the gym or whatever sort of thing you wish were already true that isn't true. Like, and that's when you get these sort of extra mm -hmm. layers. It's kind of like, yeah. I might like the idea of my cat wearing clothes, but my cat shirt doesn't. And it's kind of like, we like the idea of being buffer or more attractive or thinner or whatever, but the animal sure doesn't like the feeling of trying to get there. Well, I mean, I was reading a piece by Sasha Shapin recently that was saying, actually, uh -huh. like, you're kind of abusing your body if you don't lift, which is a pretty interesting take. It's like your body is made to be under load. Like, yeah. it's not made to be a fucking bodybuilder with 4% body fat and fucking veins popping out and you know all that shit but your body's made to be used and doing yeah. stuff yeah. and i guess another way i would approach like the whole thing starting from a really big like wide out lens is just like does the whole thing feel kind of playful or does it feel mm -hmm. like work does it feel like a slog does it feel like you know the difference between you know if somebody's working in a physical context the difference between enjoying the flow of the you know berries you're picking or the mud you're shoveling or the bricks you're laying <laughs> right. or being in a state of like i fucking hate this i don't want to be here <laughs> like those are just so totally different states of mind for the yeah. for in some sense the same physical activity yeah, yeah. like it's definitely a, a perspective we see this at work right like at work, I work with people that are, they're happy to be there. And then I also work with people that every day they just hate it, yeah. <laughs> you know, like they, they just, they just, well, I'm here and, and then, and they're like ecstatic to leave. And I'm like, this is half your day, <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. maybe do something else or be happier. Right. Right. But, but like part of what's going on for for somebody in that situation is like they have a fear like basically they have something going on like this and it's going to be different for each person right like i'm not yeah. i'm not giving therapy to any of your employees right now um <laughs> but like it, it, they've got something going on that's saying for instance if i let myself feel good i would stay here too like too long whatever that means mm, like i right. i want to be doing something else and I don't trust that I won't leave unless I feel miserable as long as I'm here. And so that's where you, you can intervene on the question of, okay, could I leave right now? Like, do I actually just have enough resources to like just quit today and uh, deal with things until I find some other job that I expect to like more? And for some people that might be true and that would be a great move for other people that might not be true. And if it's really not true, can they like, actually set in into place a plan that they trust that's going to get them somewhere better and doesn't require them to somehow feel miserable in order to get themselves somewhere better because if so then it's like okay i gotta work this thing for like another two years you know but like i have clar clarity that once i've done that i'll be able to do this thing with the savings that i'll have made up and then i'll be able to do that and like that makes sense and it's only right. going to be two more years i mean two years is kind of a long time but it's also not, you know, it's sort of depending on the perspective. Mm. Yeah. And I, I think the the real situation with a lot of people is they can't envision 
if they either can't envision a better life or if they can envision a better life, they don't know how to get there. I think it's got to be the second one, because if you actually can't envision something better then by kind of by definition, you're happy. <laughs> so some people would call that depressed, but yeah, it might be, it might be happy too. I, I think you, I think people might be dissociated from the envisioning of something better. Mm -hmm. But yeah. but like necessarily you have some sense. Ah, ah, I guess it, it might not be a conflict about how to get there. It might be that like you can envision something you sort of implicitly can envision something that would be better along some dimension, but would be sufficiently worse along another that you know that you won't do it. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, if I left my family, then I could be happy because I could go to Spain and just, you know, work on a favela or something. I don't know. Mm -hmm. But like, you have some idea of what you could do, but like you're blocked on it by some other thing. But that, again, that's partially about how to get there, right? Speaking of um, envisioning and manifesting and all this stuff, uh, what did the book unlocking the emotional brain teach you about how we can change our minds i i almost want to say something a little paradoxical which is that it taught me that we can't but mm. i but i mean that in a very precise sort of way people are afraid of having their minds forcibly changed mm -hmm. and one of the things that unlocking the emotional brain taught me is that like in some sense, you actually don't have to worry about that. But only in some sense, it's it's quite subtle. So I'll, I'll kind of unpack what I mean by that. People are afraid that like, people are compartmentalized, first of all, is kind of the, the, the thing you, the, the sort of starting frame for what I'm trying to say here. And parts of them really, really, really wish they could just overwrite the other parts. Like, geez, it would sure be nice if all the parts of me that don't want to go to the gym could just shut the fuck up so I could go to the gym. <laughs> Ugh. Ugh. Geez, it would sure be nice if the parts of me that want to, like, work harder and make more money, like, uh, were able to just, like, win over the parts of me that, like, seem to have resistance about that. That would be great. Um, yeah. Whatever the thing is, right? So there's, on the one hand, there's like a feeling of wanting to sort of just overwrite some of the other parts. Mm -hmm. Simultaneously, people have a fear of that overwriting occurring on behalf of whatever parts are sort of not officially endorsed by the ego or whatever. Um, and if you really get what unlocking the emotional brain is pointing at, it basically says... You can't just overwriting is not doesn't doesn't work like that. Um, mm -hmm. Your mind only updates in directions it prefers, and it only prefers things in the terms of the sense that it's already making of things. And so whatever parts don't feel like going to the gym or don't feel like working harder to make more money or don't feel like um, it's safe to be be vulnerable and uh honest with your partner or whatever whatever parts don't think that those things are possible they know something they know something that the parts that think that you should just go ahead and do that don't know hmm. and in order to shift you need to actually find out what it is that they know and bring that into dialogue with 
this other knowing that you have about the cost that you're bearing by continuing to, you know, withhold love from your partner or continuing to not go to the gym or whatever the, the other sort of stuck behavior is continuing to be at this job that you hate, but also you can't leave, but also you hate, but also you can't leave. Like right. w whatever the cost is of this situation, you need to somehow bring that in dialogue with the other cost that you were successfully avoiding by staying in the situation. Right. And then once those come into dialogue, some new sense will emerge. And you can sometimes guess what that's going to be in advance. Like you mm -hmm. can tell that snapping at your partner isn't working, right? Like, you know, right. the strategy is not working. Right. But you don't yet know what the actual better strategy exactly looks like or the way of conceiving that strategy, what that looks like or um, whatever else. And and you don't yet know exactly why it's not available. And so you need to go to go and really see the sense that it in fact makes to be doing exactly what you're doing to whatever part of you is outputting precisely that behavior. Hmm. Is this ultimately just about acceptance? Like I'm, I'm thinking a little bit about IFS and having the different parts of us um, speak to one another. Um, parts of us being us, the individual, mm -hmm. um, speak within ourselves. Um, but I feel like a lot of that is just like one of the many pathways to accepting the experience we have for what it is. Yeah, the, the coherence therapy framework uh, uses IFS as one example of a process for doing this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Like they have their own technique called called coherence therapy, which is sort of in, was created for the purpose of illustrating the kind of um, process of change as they understand it. But they also recognize that there are many other therapy modalities that successfully produce the same kinds of change. So when we're talking about change here or better change, what is what does the result look like? Yeah, well, I mean, and this this gets back into that whole thing around willpower. It's like. If you're able to make a new kind of sense of things. Then the ch the new the, the new change is effortless. Like, or sorry, not new change, the new the new behavior, the new sense making that you're doing of the world is just how you're actually making sense of things. So it's like. Um, like, I, I'm not suppressing right now an urge to be angry at you. Mm -hmm. I see I see no need to be angry at you. Um, when people try to do do behavior change in way or mindset change in ways that sort of don't respect the underlying coherence. What they end up doing is fighting some part of them that's making one kind of sense of a situation and saying, no, you should be making a different kind of sense of this and doing a different thing. When when the when the change is actually transformational and comes from the deeper coherence of the emotional and embodied cognition system, then it's it's more like the thing where, as I said, like I'm I'm not suppressing anger at you right now because I just have no no source of anger in the first place. Like I just, that's not, that doesn't arise as a strategy. It took me a moment to even think of an example of a thing. It wasn't occurring to me to need to do right now. If you see what I mean, that's a hard thing to think of an example of. Yeah. <laughs> but like, you know, it, there are topics probably that if you brought them up, I would get kind of feisty. Right. And I would have a kind of anger, bitter 
bite energy to me. And then it's like, okay, well, that would be how I'm making sense of things. You once asked, what if gossip were good? Tell me more about how you envision healthy communication channels and whether you en- you envision um, gossip being an important component within them. Yeah, I mean, that was kind of a little bit of a Cunningham's Law flavored tweet. It was like, uh, say the thing in a relatively inflammatory sort of way to solicit a bunch of responses. Mm. I don't do that very often in terms of how I approach the internet, but um, but I did it a little bit there. The first thing to know is that the 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 what if it were good though question is mostly aimed towards like how could we make it good like you know consider this thing that exists you know smartphones or the internet or Twitter or uh, microwaves like you know like did anybody ask like what if this thing were good like did they mm-hmm. actually ask that about all the different aspects of this of this thing. And you often find that, in fact, they didn't. They just literally didn't consider 90% of the actual thing, even though they thought they designed the whole thing. Um, Like 90% of the thing is actually completely composed of unquestioned assumptions. Um, And and so it's like, so then taking that question and applying it to, to gossip, it's like, okay, we have maybe a bunch of assumptions about what's going on when people talk about each other, right? Uh, when they're not there. And sometimes that is what's going on, of course, as well. Like that's, it's, and partly sometimes that's what's going on because that's what we think is going on, right? Like sort of self-reinforcing assumptions. Mm-hmm. Con- concretely, when I think of like, what if gossip were good? Like, what if, like, I mean, to, yeah, to rephrase the question, something like, yeah, what does a healthy community look like along the dimension of how people talk about people who aren't in the room right and by and large i i think that so so this this is going to be complex like i'm going to say some things some of these things could be used to justify doing unhealthy things in the name of whatever i'm just saying right now so mm-hmm. if something seems bad to you like and somebody else is justifying it based on some shit that I said, like trust that some part of me thinks it's bad, you know, like um, I'm not asserting that anything that matches this description is necessarily good. Uh, There, you know, any, any kind of framework for relating can, can be weaponized in dozens of ways. Um, As I see it, it's really important for healthy communities to be able to talk about people who are not there on a whole bunch of different dimensions like you know just like hey is this person okay like what do you know about their situation like they talk to me about being really upset about this thing did they talk to you do do you know if they've talked to anybody else like how how are they doing like and there's a kind of sense making there that sort of needs to happen on behalf of like sort of needs to happen by the larger community in order to find out like what's actually going on and Um, and so that's kind of, you know, directly caring for maybe something that somebody's brought up. It's like, Hey, should we coordinate to send them a casserole? You know, if everybody is just on their own with talking to somebody who's having a rough time, they might themselves feel alone in supporting them. And they might not know, Oh, they actually have a lot of support from the community. I'm not on my own here. I can take a day off Mm -hmm. because they have two other people that they're messaging, you know, or 
they have somebody else who's bringing them casserole to take the kind of uh, more more kind of uh, liter- literal physical community uh, trope. A key about gossip, and, and it's why gossip is always um, continued. It's adding this this nuance information layer to social interaction. And I think it was, I might be remembering incorrectly, but I think Kevin Simler once wrote about how um, he was at this small company and there was this executive or someone in power that was like one-on-one, he was a little bit of a bully and a little bit cruel, but when he was in the group, he was always charismatic. And so he's kind of like this Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde mm. character. And the only reason that he ended up getting pushed out of the company is because of gossip. Right. People were able to talk to each other and be like, right. man, like, yeah, you know, Jack's really a jerk when he, you know, when we we're having our one-on-ones, it's like, Hey, he's a jerk to me too. Like what's going on with that? Like, um, yeah. And, and this is the thing where it's like, if you try to get rid of gossip, you end up with the kind of divide and conquer strategy. I read a really detailed, um, case study of a a situation where a sociopath um kind of took over and fucked over a some sort of tech related community i don't remember what it was but yeah and and part of part of what was so clear to me when i read that is like the reason that this works is that people aren't talking to each other like they're all kind of um they they were all sort of treating their awkward uncomfortable tense relationship with this person as something that would be bad to talk about for various reasons and the the sociopath was um kind of enforcing that lens on um on it like what was kind of saying to people you know don't talk about this with somebody else they'll you know mm-hmm. that would be shameful right you know it's kind of part of how that goes so so yeah so people need the capacity to kind of confer on things both for the both for the benefit of other people and for the benefit of themselves like recognizing wait we're all being kind of shoved under the bus by this person like it's not just me this isn't even about me at all they're doing it to everybody you know um yeah but the the fear that it might be just about oneself is part of what keeps people from actually conferring like that and and part of what's going on with this too is that sometimes it's really hard to bring this sort of thing up with people because like bring this sort of thing up with the person themselves directly because even in a way less egregious case it's like people have blind spots they they right. they're doing weird stuff that they themselves don't really understand and if you try to talk to them about it they'll be like what I don't know what you mean like no I'm just doing my thing like they'll kind of defer deflect the idea that there's something to be looked at there mm-hmm. but if you talk with other people you might be able to get a sense of like, oh, yeah, that that kind of struck me as weird, too. Like you can kind of see more of it outside of the frame in which the blind spot makes it impossible to see. Um, so that's really important, too. Um, the, the other thing I'll say is that if people are listening to this and they're curious to kind of hear more a bit about some of my context with this, um, if you check out my interview with Tashin Fogelman on his mm-hmm. Reach Truth podcast, um, which can be found on YouTube and elsewhere. Um, we talk there about my history with uh, recording conversations, which is something that the groups that I've been part of over the last, um, well, I guess the group didn't always do it, but for the last five years or so, um, a substantial chunk of the conversations that I've been in have been recorded. And we would sometimes like share those with other people um, Mm -hmm. in the community that I was part of um, and like listen to them and digest them and 
I've learned a ton by hearing people talk about me when I wasn't there, you know, or just hearing them have a conversation that had nothing to do with me when I wasn't there. And I got to find out what conversations were like when I wasn't in them, which is kind of weird, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah like, that is, and, and this that goes is back to the, what makes for good conversation. Like different people are bringing in different assumptions and priorities. And so there are certain conversations that are just going to have trouble happening uh, or not even have trouble. They're just not going to be able to happen with a certain person in them because that person is going to consistently steer away from some blind spot of theirs. Mm. And so that conversation is going to need to happen if it's going to happen at all with that, without them in the room, but then they might be able to listen to that conversation and kind of get something really powerful out of it. So Malcolm, I think you are largely responsible for popularizing McGilchrist's the master and his emissary which I would love to discuss. I should mention that McGillicrist has a new book out now, The Matter With Things. I haven't read it, but I checked the contents. And after you remove the indices and the appendices, the book is still like the size of infinite jest. It's it's long. It's two volumes. I haven't yeah. I haven't gotten into it myself either. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I have I haven't even ordered a copy yet because it's just like, oh, that's a tome. Um but I'm sure I'll check it out sooner or later. Yeah, I'm, I'm waiting for a few more more intelligent people than I am to give me a something to think about it before I delve that deep into something like I still need to read reasons and persons. But um, before well, I start he, talking about... He's probably got... McGilchrist probably has some like uh, YouTube or podcast interviews out. He did tons of those mm -hmm, in relation yeah. to the Master and His Emissary. And he yeah. mentioned the upcoming book in some of those. So I would bet that you could actually go straight to the source and just like hear him expound on it. Before I start talking about the hemispheres and all that, is there anything you would like to say just to introduce uh, McGilchrist or either either him as a person or his body of work, um, why you think it's important or why he's important or why you like his approach? Well, there, there's sort of there's a bunch of really interesting meta levels here, which um, which relate to you know my being responsible for a large chunk of our scene, either having read the book itself or at least having read one of my summaries or at least yeah. being familiar with the idea that there might be something interesting going on with the hemispheres and mm -hmm. not just a bunch of 1950s, 1960s pseudoscience crap um <laughs> that like even the originator of michael gazaniga um like he has renounced most of his work from that time um and i mean that that says something when you know the original author is like no 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 don't don't go read those papers um mm -hmm. so um so so yeah and I, it's it is a fascinating thing about the way that information flows that like if if one gets excited enough about a particular model or theory and and has the energy, you know, if you have the energy to write about it and talk about it excitedly for months on end, you can sometimes get a lot of other people to check out that that work. Um, and 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 what's interesting is the different things that people have gotten out of it. That's part of been part of what's really been interesting to me. I feel like Michael Ashcroft has in some ways gotten the most out of it. And I can tell in part because he's, he's still writing his own threads about McGilchrist, like well after having read it, he's like, Oh man, this is clicking even deeper. This is connecting with this other thing and this other thing and this other element of the Alexander technique thing and all of that. Yeah. And, um, and that feels similar to 
the level on which McGilchrist clicked for me, which I don't think it did for most people. And I don't think it really made sense for it to click for most people because like I had a really central question in my life that I was trying to answer that McGilchrist had a really, really powerful answer for in his model. And most people, you know, they're not walking around with such a question. So it's not going to like hit them the same way. I think you need to have a deep like right brain experience in your life and a deep left brain experience of your life. And if you've had both of those extremes occur to you, then when you read this book, it, it makes so much sense. Like Mm -hmm. it's so clear and obvious, but I think for the regular person living their life, then it, it might just seem like mumbo jumbo. Um, before we get real, real deep into this, because I've got plenty of quotes, um, to benefit the listener, I'll explain a bit by what we mean when we're talking about the left and the right hemisphere. And um, using McGilchrist's language, he writes that the left hemisphere favors analytic sequential processing, where the right hemisphere favors parallel processing of different streams of information simultaneously. The left hemisphere seeks out certainty and tries to build on it, while for the right hemisphere, knowledge comes through a relationship and a betweenness, a back and forth reverberative process between itself and the other, and is therefore never finished, and so it cannot be ever certain. Um, the left brain is tied to alienation, abstractions, parts, categories, and generalities. The right brain is tied to engagement, incarnations, the unique, the particular, and the whole, respectively. Ultimately, if the left hemisphere is the hemisphere of what, the right hemisphere, with its preoccupation with context, the relational aspects of experience, emotion and the nuances of expression could be said to be the hemisphere of how having said all that is there anything you'd like to add about how you think about the basic differences between the two hemispheres um or about like the the what versus the how it's it's like part of why the original model that people tried to build of the hemispheres completely fell apart is that it was a what type of a model and when you try to say what do the two hemispheres do, there are not really very good answers to that. Like there are some answers of like, well, you know, music is in the right hemisphere, mostly except in trained musicians where a bunch of it is done in the left hemisphere. And, you know, language is in the left hemisphere. Although don't, don't get, don't get me wrong. Like the right hemisphere can totally understand language. It just doesn't have its own vocabulary to talk with, you know? And Mm -hmm. so it starts getting really fuzzy. Um, But that's because you're asking a what type of question. And if you ask a how type of question about the hemispheres, then suddenly the differences are so much more vivid and stark where the the left hemisphere is this kind of um, narrowly focused grasping sort of creature kind of driven to um, whose whole purpose is to, in fact, have blind spots and simplify the world in order to manipulate it. And the right hemisphere cannot help but perceive everything all at once and make sense of it all uh, anew. And Mm -hmm. these are two totally different ways of looking at the world. And in the same way that like a blind person and a deaf person are just going to have totally different experiences, even if they live in the same house on the same block 
and, you know, speak the same language. They are going to have completely different experiences of what kind of world it is. Um, mm -hmm. And, and the, you know, the perceptual difference between the hemispheres is of that kind of order of magnitude. We just don't notice because we are all to whatever extent, you know, synthesizing those two views all the time. I like, I like the, the image of a deaf person and a blind person living in a house together. You know, like uh, these different parts of us are, are almost like in every moment, they almost believe that they're the center of the universe in their own way. And we are saying that they're both us, but it's, it's clear that when you really analyze them and I'll get into this a little bit later, but when you analyze them, things, things start falling apart and it's really strange. Um, you, you access the strangeness about human experience, but the way that such a couple would get along is a lot like what it's like to make sense of life in the world, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. And, and I think that the, the thing to keep track of as well, another analogy that I came up with, which I actually had the idea of making some like comics about at some point, but I haven't gotten to that mm -hmm. is if you imagine two hikers and they're, they're walking along a path and the one hiker is looking at the map this is the left hemisphere and the mm -hmm. other hiker is looking at the world yeah. <laughs> and the left hemisphere bait and nearly can't look up from the map. Right. So you've got a really funny puzzle here where the left hemisphere is going, Oh no, Oh no, don't, don't walk there. We'll, we'll walk into a, 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 a Creek and the right hemisphere is going, it's, it's late summer. Like the Creek is dried up. We can just walk across right here. Like, yeah. But like the map doesn't reflect that or the map is saying, hey, we can just take a thing here. And it's like, no, that bridge is out <laughs> like. Um, and so there's this dialogue needed where, you know, the left hemisphere's map is incredibly valuable and it's not a substitute for the actual world. Mm. And the relationship between the two is not symmetrical. And the left hemisphere needs the right hemisphere to point at its blind spots and the ways in which its map is uh, out of date or oversimplified or. Um, missing something i do have a question about the reality of all this stuff though which is uh the hemispheric model seems to be an umbrella under which we can categorize types of human experience um to put it simply do you believe that mcgillchrist model is physically how the brain works or is it simply a metaphor for the these like these concepts of how it works do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, it's it's a tricky question. And so there are some people who who sort of view it as very metaphorical. And uh -huh. I think I think that's a mistake. Um it it limits the power of the whole thing because it there is deep correlates to, you know, like if somebody has a right hemisphere stroke versus a left hemisphere stroke, mm -hmm. they have a completely different response to that whole experience. They have a very different like those two strokes are not simply in one, the left side of your body is paralyzed in the other, the right side of your body is paralyzed. No, if the left side of your body is paralyzed, you're going to be in denial about the fact that you're, you even have an arm on that side that is paralyzed. This is really weird. The same thing doesn't happen with the left hemisphere stroke. Mm -hmm. The person with the left hemisphere stroke is very aware that they have a paralyzed right arm. Like these are not symmetrical types of events and they, they do correlate really strongly to the brain and they fit within the model that McGilchrist has laid out. So there's definitely something neurological going on there. 
Having said that, it's really freaking hard to talk about. It's, it is, it's so, so easy to oversimplify and say, oh, the left hemisphere thinks this, the right hemisphere thinks that. Well, they are talking nonstop all the time, right? Right. And I mean, yeah, they are more separate than any other two halves of the brain. Like there is no way to slice the brain that is even more separate than the two hemispheres. It is the obvious two part mm -hmm. division to make of the brain. Um, but they are really closely in coordination. You know, if you clap your hands together, that's your left hemisphere and your right hemisphere coordinating your hands to go exactly together, you know, and that's sure that's in the motor cortex, not in the prefrontal cortex, but like, you know, if I formulate a metaphor and then put it into words, that metaphor came from my right hemisphere and the words came from my left. And like that's happening every moment. And so separating out these two is fucking hard. And right. it makes the whole thing really slippery and hard to talk about. This, so there's, th that's kind of my answer to your question. It's it, you're like on one level, you're making a mistake if you say the left hemisphere does blah, blah, blah. And the right hemisphere does blah, blah, blah. Like, on, on one hand, that's like grossly oversimplified and, and unworkable. On another on another level, there is something profoundly neurological going on about these these different viewpoints that people have on the world that can't be treated as simply metaphorical. McGillchrist writes, the right hemisphere is in direct contact with the embodied lived world. The left hemisphere world is, by comparison, a virtual bloodless affair. In this sense, the left hemisphere is parasitic on the right. It does not itself have life. Its life comes from the right hemisphere, to which it can only say no or not say no, which is to say most of what the left hemisphere does is a matter of negation. And McGill Chris goes on to say that, however, both hemispheres take part in virtually all functions to some extent, which is essentially what you're saying. Mm -hmm. And um, he continues, I do not wish to leave the impression that it might be a good thing if the entire population had a left hemisphere stroke. I take it for granted that the contributions made by the left hemisphere to language and systematic thought in particular are invaluable. Our talent for division, for seeing the parts, is of staggering importance, second only to our capacity to transcend it in order to see the whole. So as we discuss transcending the limitations of the left hemisphere, which are deeply important, can you explain to me what is most valuable about the left hemisphere, you know, before we we start shit-talking it? I, I There's part of me that's just... In enjoying and experiencing some amusement at the experience of finding myself a sort of uh informal subject matter expert on somebody else's book you know what i mean like it's <laughs> right. but but i i appear to be in some sense you know i i definitely have some opinions on it and and have some embodied takes on it all yeah. um and uh yeah and and anyway so that's just part of what's present for me in this moment yeah um in response to your question um i'm gonna come at this a little bit of a roundabout way um so this is my idea not mcgillchrist's um one thing that i've thought about is something like if you imagine that the left hemisphere and right hemisphere are like two different kinds of computers and and i i use this metaphor um 
with some caution because some people will tell you the brain is a computer. Like, no, 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 <laughs> no, no. Go read Korzybski and stop saying that anything is anything else. Um, <laughs> whatever you say a thing is, it is not. Um, but, but, but if you think of the left hemisphere and right hemisphere as being like two different kinds of computers, two different kinds of, you know, sort yeah. of hardware situations, um, for, for, uh, for computation, for information processing, right? Um, you can, you can sort of imagine that there are different kinds of operating systems that you might install on each of these types of hardware. Mm -hmm. And you're going to want different you know, you're going to want one type of operating system for a left hemisphere and a different type for a right hemisphere. And mm -hmm. so the left hemisphere naturally runs operating systems like logic, um, you know, syllogistic logic, or um, it naturally, or it can, you know, it can even run um, a paradox logic, like a diamond logic, which has four truth states, true, false, and false, but true, and true, but false. Um, and you can do all sorts of funky weird paradox logic with true but false um as a, and as an additional logic state and you can do math with it and you get paraconsistent logic and you can you can install all these sorts of logics all these frameworks all of these um ways for manipulating parts once those parts have been you know decomposed into into parts um you can you can really effectively have all of these various systems for working with these kinds of parts over there and for doing you know the kind of um uh reasoning from from the categories that you actually have and if those categories are good enough this is great and really important you know if you go and get a you know like i went and got a covid test yesterday and it came back negative mm -hmm. i might still have covid right there are false negatives right um if it had come back positive i might not have covid there's false positives too and you and mm -hmm. the ability to discern what the right number for that should be involves doing a bunch of math and it's not necessarily intuitive. Um, mm -hmm. And as we build up more technology that generates results that don't, that, that don't come from our intuition in the first place, but are really mm. powerful sources of information, we necessarily need to have really effective left hemisphere operating systems for making sense of those results. And so those are things like Bayesian statistics to be able to interpret false positives and false negatives in the context of the base rates in the first place. Um, and those are, yeah, things like that. And so that's sort of one piece. It's like, you need to have that to make sense of that. Um, I've got a segue. A given left hemisphere framework is going to be more or less compatible with the right hemisphere's intuitions and holistic perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, so, you know, a given operating system for the left hemisphere might work, might interoperate better or worse with, with the right hemisphere. And I think there's a role for, you know, what kinds of frameworks does the right hemisphere have to integrate with the left as well. But the, the converse is, I think, more important. So if you take, for, for example, the kind of, um, um, kind of classic logic and its law of the excluded middle, you know, anything either is X or is not X. There's no in between, mm -hmm. yeah. you know, um, uh, and then you get from that, you get paradoxes like, you know, one grain of sand is not a heap of sand, right? 
add right. another grain, it's still not a heap of sand. And you can say, well, surely adding one grain is like never enough to turn something from not heap to heap, right? right. Surely, if it's if it's all, if it's going to be a heap with one more grain, it's already a heap. And yet, paradox, you can keep adding grains of sand and soon enough, or actually it might take a while, but eventually you have a heap. Right. How did you do it, right? Well, you did it by pretending that there was two clear-cut categories of heap and not heap, which was, where'd you come up with that idea? Like, prove that that is true, right? Like, and the only way that you're proving it's true is by taking as an axiom of what truth even is that any statement or its negation must be true. But the, the point is, that's a kind of like basic left hemisphere framework that if you're using those kinds of assumptions with your left hemisphere, you're going to have a tough time relating to the gestaltness of a right hemisphere. Some people can watch trees grow. Other people can't. And the skill involved in watching trees grow is essentially something that the right hemisphere does naturally. It's sort of a feel of, yeah, this tree is bigger than it was last time I felt into it. And it's, mm. you can't name how it's bigger. I mean, you could measure it periodically, but it's not about that. It's about just your own sense of like, yeah, this tree that's in my backyard, it wasn't as big when I moved in. You know, similarly, somebody who's in touch with that can sense into the really subtle tipping points that emerge in a complex system that somebody who can't track those subtle factors and is and insists that at any given point they have to like strictly map into a category, right. that person is going to be very surprised when somebody who isn't doing categorical thinking suddenly goes, I think it's time. It's like, well, what do you mean you think it's time? Like, well, right. I think it's time. It, I've been watching it. Seems like it's time. It, you know, time for whatever, right? Like some some move in the system. Some sort of inflection point. Yeah. Right, right. But you can't sense the inflection point if you're busy discarding all of the tiny changes right. because they like aren't significant enough. Right, or, or you see them as all the same. Yeah, and so with the... So so my best candidate of roughly what, what left hemisphere framework I think best maps onto and, and is able to allow the left hemisphere to talk with the right hemisphere sanely, my best candidate for that at present is what's known as systems thinking, mm -hmm. closely related to complexity science, and you know complex system dynamics and general systems theory these are all sort of these overlapping terms for stuff and um before i get into saying more about that i'll just say that like by far the best introduction to um systems thinking is probably going to be Danella meadows book thinking in systems um mm -hmm. and it and it can give you a, a whole bunch of ways to think about the world mathematically and rigorously that also track the kind of mutual causality and nonlinear dynamics that the right hemisphere tracks naturally. Mm. But the right hemisphere can't necessarily itself put the math to all those intuitions, can't necessarily, right. you know, figure out at which point exactly a given system that you're trying to model using you know, measurement instruments as opposed to just your intuition, at which point the system will suddenly tip over into some sort of chaotic nonlinear dynamic. So you do need the math for it. Right. Or like at what point, you know, the positive feedback loop starts going out of control. Um, you do need the math for that. Um, and if you have the left hemisphere equipped with a kind of math that isn't 
constantly contradicting the right hemisphere by saying everything either is X or is not X, then the two are going to be able to talk together a lot better. So that's not really a good, uh, a clear response to your question of like, how's the left hemisphere good? But I feel like it implicitly answers that question by saying, well, look, it's, it's about upgrading the left hemisphere so that it can work in a world that is this complex and can do so in dialogue with the intuition rather than fighting it. I think you're beginning to touch on the the seeming paradox of this, though, which is like, uh, it reminds me of, of Jung, who famously wrote, until you make the unconscious conscious, it will direct your life and you will call it fate, um, which like raises for me the question of why are you reading this book, right? Like, why are you learning about the differences between the hemispheres and you know, or, you know, the, the different concepts and um, what are you trying to do with this? Which is fundamentally like it's a utilitarian thing, right? And it's, it's so um, tied to goal seeking and everything like that. So I think my question is sort of like, is it all to some explicit end or like uh, regarding Jung and um, kind of we're trying to protect ourselves from our lives being directed in, in such a way that we think is um, relentless or unpreventable? Like, is that why we're reading this book? Like, why are we learning about the different ways our brain works? Is it just for fun or... Mm is is knowing this stuff doing something and what is that something what is it that we want but you, you see the paradox in it though right because it seems so left-brained it's also the dharma go on parts of the dharma say that part of what is needed for awakening or whatever you want to call it is for the mind to understand the nature of mind and personally, I have met no greater book for that than The Master and His Emissary mm. on, on one particular dimension. On another dimension, I would also say Making Sense of Behavior or Behavior the Control of Perception by William T. Powers. Um, perceptual control theory books are, um, are very good for this as well. And um, you can listen to my interview with Johnny Miller um, from a few weeks ago if you want to hear me rave about those and why I think they're important. Um, I'll make sure to link them. Yeah. And so, but, but in particular, the, you know, uh, the Buddha talks about mind as being a sense organ, like the eyes or the, the ears. And one way to parse what he means by that is that he's actually referring to the left hemisphere in particular, the, the organ of sense making, the organ of thought. And the idea is that if you are properly locating your locus of uh, selfing or something in the right hemisphere, then you're kind of doing your thing. And sometimes you have something that needs computing or needs articulating in words. And you kind of pass that off to the left hemisphere who takes care of that in the same way that your eyes take care of um, <laughs> seeing uh, where the road is that you're driving on or in the same way that your hand takes care of feeling where your glasses are when you, you know, wake up in the morning. Right. So understanding that the left hemisphere exists and also is not all of your cognition, which is a sort of uh, common confusion that it gets into, which 
I actually think is reflected in the very word unconscious. We talk about unconscious as if it's one thing. Right. It's everything that's not conscious. There are many of those things. The idea of unconscious as a natural category is as weird as the idea of Gentile as a natural category. <laughs> it makes sense only from the perspective of being a Jew. Mm -hmm. It's like everyone else is a Gentile, but it's not a natural category <laughs> from anybody else's perspective. Um, and likewise, the unconscious is only a natural category from consciousness's perspective. Um, when you dig into it, you find most of what's going on in the brain is not conscious, and it carries all sorts of different kinds of type signatures of what kinds of cognition it is. You know, there's the motor cognition of what you're doing. There is the um, emotional brain stuff that is, you know, talked about so powerfully in unlocking the emotional brain and is a large part of what people are talking about when they're talking about shadow work. There's the right hemisphere, which is a completely different kind of unconscious than the emotional brain. It's, you know, intuitive and not particularly inclined to justify itself. Uh, whereas the emotional brain, if you, if you poke it and ask it for reasons for things, it will spout all sorts of reasons. Um, this is sort of my gloss. A few other people have said similar things. For me, like, I mean, this was part of it. Like, well, basically, I realized that in the, the work that I was trying to do in you know, learning non-coercion, you could put it, or in developing, a, you know, game B culture is like another way that you could put it, or um, uh, adopting a learner mindset as opposed to a judge, a judger mindset. Like there's all right. these sorts of different lenses on part of what my growth path was. I realized that when I, when I, before I even read the book, when I just saw a short interview of Miguel Christ, I realized I was trying to train my left hemisphere to be a right hemisphere this was not gonna work ever 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 mm -hmm. the left hemisphere needed to instead develop more capacity to let go and say oh i actually don't have to figure this out i can let the right hemisphere take care of it which is very scary it's the same kind of scary as saying okay well i'll just let god handle this because the left hemisphere doesn't is not in charge of what the right hemisphere does, like does not have the the left hemisphere can pray to the right hemisphere. In fact, I think that's a pretty good relationship mm. for them to have at times. Um, yeah. Like, hey, I really want this. I don't know how that fits with everything, but like, <laughs> <laughs> geez, it should be nice if this could work out. That would be great. Can we can we do that? H how? I, I'm your servant. Uh, help me act in the world so as to bring that into being, even if I don't understand the whole everything. So, uh, McGilchrist writes, we arrive at the position that we cannot attain an understanding by grasping it for ourselves. It has already to be in us, and the task is to awaken it, or perhaps to unfold it, to bring it into being within us. Similarly, we can never make others understand something unless they already, at some level, understand it. This is also the meaning of the dark saying that ideas come to us, not we to them. What do you think about this idea that the conscious mind is effectively passive? That it's that it's always receiving experience and it's never really actively doing anything. That that it's that it's not creating in the world in a way except that we imagine it to be. The first thing I want to just connect with what you said there is actually in relation to earlier when you asked me what what I got from unlocking the emotional brain in terms of mm -hmm. like how how 
you know, changing one's mind works. And yep. I said, like, you know, one, one, uh, one, one confusing take in response to that is you actually can't change someone's mind. And I feel like right. McGilchrist, the quote you just read from McGilchrist is actually pointing at something very similar to what I was pointing at there of like, you can't just inject understanding into somebody. You've got to somehow crystallize an articulation of something they've already sensed, they've already experienced, they've already beheld, they've already known on some deeper level. Otherwise, like you can get them to memorize some phrase, sure, but that's not understanding. That's just a phrase. Do you, do you think that the conscious mind is passive, that that we're receiving experience or merely receiving experience and are thus almost like um, lacking in free will or the I mean, obviously, one can consciously actively do shit, right? Like what, whether that's like just like it and, and, you, and you know the difference between, hmm, what does it make sense to do? Oh, I'm hungry. I'm going to go eat. Versus like, you're just like doing something at your computer and then you're like, whoop, I'm suddenly in the kitchen, I guess. Okay, uh, <laughs> didn't plan that out. Like there is something different between those two states of mind that like the level of reflective awareness that sort of goes into them. Mm -hmm. um, so there's this video game Factorio uh, in which you set up a big factory that, you know, mines iron ore and copper ore and smelts them into iron plates and copper plates and assembles those into, you know, copper wire and then circuits and, you know, the circuits turn into, you know, little machines and the machines can then assemble more machines into other machines and you get conveyor belts and you kind of set up this whole factory. And I actually think it's a really beautiful metaphor for what it's like to be a brain. Mm -hmm. And the factory is all of your unconscious brain. And it just actually functions exactly the way it was set up to function kind of all the time, unless it's sort of disrupted by something. Um, mm -hmm. And then you, the, the character going around, you know, adding more conveyor belts and hooking them all up and putting the inserters into the assemblers and then the inserters from the assemblers into the, you know, um, the trains so the trains can go down, the, you know, setting all of the stuff up. You, the right. little character running around, are the consciousness in the brain. Hmm. And wherever you kind of wander in the system of your brain, you will tend to sort of fiddle with it and like fix any problems that are there to the best of your ability. And so right. if somebody introspects on their childhood effectively, you know, it, bearing in mind that at the point when you are sort of like a conscious adult who or, or even conscious teenager or whatever, who is like uh, sort of becoming aware of the fact that you have this factory that you're running or whatever with all of these things set up by the time you become aware of this that thing is a mess like it is a colossal <laughs> absurd mess of all sorts of like situational things that you did right. at the time and you don't remember why um or you kind of remember why but like it's that doesn't work anymore because the throughput needs to be way higher and like you can't easily change it because there's not room to add more conveyor belts and blah 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 mm -hmm. so you inherit this really messy factory and you're trying to do stuff with it. And your, your consciousness is kind of, is the, the meddler in this factory that is otherwise going to do exactly what it has been set up to do. And so you go around in your awareness of your system and you notice, Oh, I keep getting stuck on this thing. Like, why am I getting stuck there? And if you don't have, 
too much shame to go look at it. Like mm -hmm. a lot of people are blocked on on development because when they try to look at something where they're blocked, they they get a whole big shame response that keeps them from looking at it, right? Um, but if you didn't have that, you'd just be kind of like, oh, I'm stuck here. What's going on with that? And you just you would point your consciousness at it and you just kind of go go jiggle it a little and you'd kind of be like, oh, I seem to have set it up so that I can only feel happy once I've done everything on my to-do list. Mm -hmm. That's really silly. <laughs> like that's that's just not going to happen. I'm probably I don't even think I'm going to do 30% of this stuff. It was just on the list so I could get it out of my head. Like that's right. really silly. And once you realize that, then the thing shifts and you kind of, oh, that makes sense. I don't have to do it like that anymore. So, but in that sense, the consciousness in, in some sense, insofar as this is what consciousness is, and, and again, it's not clear to me that this is the same meaning of consciousness as, you know, referring to the left hemisphere, for instance, or whatever. Um, mm -hmm. but, but insofar as this is what consciousness is, there is actually a kind of passivity to it. Yeah, it just kind of goes around and fiddles with whatever its attention gets drawn to. And in some sense, its attention gets drawn to whatever it needs to get drawn to like whatever is not in fact working very well the issue is that like people get stuck in loops where it's like if you imagine somebody with a factory they're like oh man my iron ore patch dried up i've got to go make another iron ore patch and run the conveyor belts from over there but mm. i'm out of iron plates and so i can't build any more conveyor belts or build any more uh you know iron mining drills crap all right well so i guess i gotta go get more iron wait but i don't have any iron because my iron thing dried up and they just stay in this loop forever and they kind of right. they never find a way to sort of bootstrap out of it and so that's how that's what happens with a lot of people and you know their consciousness gets kind of stuck failing to actually play its role as the, the grand the grand twiddler untangler meddler lessing wrote that the true value of a man is not determined by his possession, supposed or real, of truth, but rather by his sincere exertion to get to what lies behind the truth. It is not possession of the truth, but rather the pursuit of truth by which he extends his powers, in which his ever-growing perfectibility is to be found. What do you what do you make of this about the the pursuit versus possession of the truth. And um, how, how do you think about the importance of those roles? I mean, they kind of both sound a bit left hemisphere -y to me. The right hemisphere almost more just like kind of drinks up the truth. It's just like kind of right there. So let me, let me phrase this a different way, which is um, I feel like when I re read The Master and His Emissary, I felt like this was a pretty good explanation of what was going on when it came to Buddhism and Taoism and enlightenment and this experience, right? It, it, it kind of explains in a more modern way something going on with people when they were achieving a kind of experience that was transcendent. Mm -hmm. um, so how do you think about what is going on with a person's mind when they are approaching or achieving enlightenment or when they're having enlightened experience? Well, keeping in mind that 
I don't really profess to know what enlightenment is. I have opinions about this. <laughs> Do share. <laughs> so with with that caveat, I have opinions. Um, and one aspect of that is I've read some of the Dzogchen books from the Aro Buddhism group um, connected with David Chapman and so forth. And it's really clear reading some of those that they are talking about some sort of shift from a left hemisphere based way of being to a right hemisphere based way of being again, whatever right. that means. Yeah. Uh, you know, do I actually know what that would look like on a brain scan? No fucking clue. No idea. Um, you know, I read some of Locke Kelly's book, the, the way of effortless mindfulness, which talks about a, a, a totally different kind of mindfulness than um, the type of types of mindfulness that are usually practiced in the West, which are largely downstream of John Kabat-Zinn's um, uh, mindfulness-based stress reduction type type techniques. Um, mm -hmm. And those are largely down downstream of Sutric Buddhism or maybe, you know, Theravada, maybe Mahayana type stuff. And, um, and Locke Kelly's effortless mindful, mindfulness is downstream of um, the sort of Mahamudra and Dzogchen schools effortful mindfulness if you want to call it that um seems to be in some ways a left hemisphere sort of activity you are focusing your attention on the breath right mm -hmm. there's something there's something focusy about the whole thing you're like you're, you're doing it right <laughs> um right. effortless mindfulness is more of a kind of relaxing into mindfulness that's already there and this seems to me to map much more onto what McGilchrist is talking about with the right hemisphere. However, in Locke Kelly's book, he talks about having been a participant in a study where, um, and I'm going to get the details of this, this wrong unless I go grab the quote, which I'm not going to. Um, but he was a participant in a study that was something about people were doing two or three different kinds of meditation in an fMRI machine. Yeah. And, and then they were measuring activity in the task positive network and the default mode network. They noticed that I think one type of meditation inhibited one of those and enhanced the other and another type inhibited the other and enhanced the one. And the effortless mindfulness thing seemed to increase both simultaneously or something on the, the details here. I am not putting much stock in at all. The point mm -hmm. is simply just that there they were doing an activity that seems to me to map onto something right hemisphere as I understand it from reading McGilchrist. And yet they're under an fMRI machine and the fMRI folks aren't like, holy shit, the right side of the brain is lit up like a Christmas tree. They're like, right. huh, the default mode network is like really active or whatever they're saying. Right. And, you know, I could imagine someone failing to miss default mode network activity, but you're not going to miss an entire hemisphere being way more active than the other, right? Like, obviously. Right. Yeah. So what that suggests to me, if I just attempt to, like, make the theories kiss, you know, like Barbies, mm -hmm. is that maybe something like there's a really important relationship between the left hemisphere and the task positive network and the right hemisphere and the default mode network or something, and... What's actually going on when we talk about right hemisphere dominance or something might actually be that the default mode network, for instance, is active, which involves the right hemisphere directing a bit more of what's going on. 
Mm-hmm. But 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 the activity is always in both hemispheres because it's very rare that like one hemisphere just isn't doing doing stuff versus the task positive network might involve the left hemisphere being more in charge and kind of directing what's going on and inhibiting certain parts of the right hemisphere or something. Um, right. Again, this is pretty strained. This is just like my attempt to make sense of everything that I've read on the, on the subject. Is there anything regarding this that you want to say or share that you think is important to um, to cover that we have not yet covered? Yeah. Well, one thing I'll mention is just I still have my notes pulled up here from the very start of the conversation where you were asking me this so timely question of like, what makes for a good conversation? Right. And it seems to me that the the left hemisphere is made for working with things, not with people. Mm-hmm. And those things can be concepts if the concepts are, are thingy enough, like if the concepts are like numbers or like, you know, like really like convenient categories um, and like well understood and definitely mutually understood between two people. Like when I say two and you say two, like we're pretty sure that we're talking about the same thing that is like less than three and more than one. Um, right. And we know what more and less than and three and one are as well. Um, but if I say coercion, like what the hell is that? Or if I say enlightenment. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a way of, you know, conversations themselves in order to enter into these really deep states of, of group flow, I think need to be fundamentally coming from a place that is more like what we're talking about when we're talking about the right hemisphere. Um, again, whatever the hell that means neurologically. And so there's a kind of letting go that is involved in that. Um, the, the same letting go that's always involved in the le- the left hemisphere going, you know what? I don't need to be controlling every little moment of this. I actually have a a really great ally on my side who is this entire other half of my brain and wants mostly the exact same things I want and is like much better at improv. Maybe I just, maybe I actually don't need a script and I can actually just let the right hemisphere kind of do its thing. And this is incredibly liberating and relieving. And when people can do it, the conversation gets way better. You know, we could talk about all the different reasons why People end up trying to have conversations from their left hemispheres instead, Mm -hmm. some of which I think are, you know, related to these frameworks, right? Like I was talking about like, you know, the left hemisphere having a framework that doesn't really fit with the the right hemisphere. Like if if that's the case, it's going to be kind of unwilling to let go or people have emotional blocks that say I need to be in control. It's not safe to let go. And that that's Mm -hmm. another thing that can keep them from from letting go. So essentially what you're talking about makes me think a lot about my work and um, what I basically do right now is essentially I, I work at Costco and I'm a front end supervisor. And what that means is that I'm traffic control, right? So um, there's the cart crew, the people, the entrance, the, the people, the exit, there are the cashiers, their assistants, the people at self-checkout and also the entire building. Like I need to send help wherever there might be a call out. Um, so that could be deli, food court, wherever. Um, I need to know what the store looks like and where where help might be needed. And so you have this kind of open up. You you To do the job well, you need to have a big picture. But I there's also 
this whole control orientedness to it that you you want to respond quickly to to waves of members coming through and um you're also being watched at all times by managers etc and to do a really good job requires a certain level of control however i find that in my job that as my control increases it appears that i treat people more like objects and I can mm. actually observe this as I'm doing mm -hmm. my work that mm -hmm. you'll tell this person to do this and this person to do this. And I'm talking about, I'm not talking about like a few people. I, I'm telling 50 people where to go and what to do. Mm -hmm. And when you're doing this quickly and systematically, it's easier. All of it is easier to do when you're treating people like objects. And that's not the best way to do it because running the business isn't something you do once, right? This mm -hmm. is a mm -hmm. game that you play again and again and again. And so in order to do it the best you possibly can, you actually have to reduce your control and kind of um, let people be who they are or respect people for who they are and let them do the work they want to do and kind of work with people and be more flexible. And so... All of this brings together for me kind of the idea that in order to do complicated things well with other people, um, you do need to have this synthesis, right, that you're talking about um, between the hemispheres where you're extremely aware of um, the complicated way that things are working, but you have enough give in any given moment to be with people as they are now and not with the person that you imagine them to be the objects in your mind. And, and I, I'll just quickly tag that the perceptual sure. control theory thing I've mentioned a couple of times mm -hmm. is very related to this as well. Like goes into great detail about the nature of control and what it means to be in control of your behavior or to be con in control of somebody else's behavior and the difference between um, commanding somebody to do something versus right. giving them a particular state of affairs to bring about kind of however they want to. Um, mm. And how the two of those are very different kinds of uh, leadership or, or different kinds of direction to be giving someone. Yeah. And in, in Zen mind, beginner's mind, um, not to, not to refer to employees as cows, but he talks about how the only way to control a cow is to let it graze as it will. And that, that touches on what you're saying where, um, but if you want someone to do the best job they can, you need to allow them to kind of figure it out their own way. Yeah. Um, which th there's definitely a beauty to that, which is kind of like maximizing creativity within a system. Yeah. Which is related to what I was saying at the start about the coercion thing. Well, that's, that's just goddamn beautiful, Malcolm. Thank you so much for coming on. I had a, I had a great time talking. Yeah. This has been fun. Thank you for listening. You can find more episodes on becomingcreature.substack.com. You can learn more about Malcolm at complice.co. You can also find him at malcolmocean.com, and you can follow him at Malcolm underscore Ocean on Twitter. I'll see you next time.